Aloha. You are listening to a message from Shorebreak Church. If you have been blessed by this week's audio message, please join us in the mission of making disciples by partnering with us in prayer or by giving financially. Partner with us by visiting shorebreakchurch.com. Mahalo. Amen. And you can remain standing and grab your Bibles and go to Mark's Gospel, chapter 11. We believe that this is the word of the Lord, and that's why we stand in honor and reverence, because we believe that when the Bible speaks, God speaks. Mark 11, verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go, in front, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And as some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields, and those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. He entered Jerusalem, went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the twelve. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Hosanna. Praise be to you, Father God, Lord in the highest. Would you be glorified, Father, in our midst, that you tell us that as the Son of Man is lifted up, that you would draw men unto yourself. Jesus, it's our desire as a church, as a people, and as a people of your word to exalt you this morning and to lift you up, to see you draw us nearer and nearer to you and for those that do not know you, that they would come to a saving faith and knowledge of you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, would you do this work? In Jesus' name, the church prays. Amen. You can be seated. Well, how's it? How's it? You guys hanging in there? Man. Okay, three of you are good. The rest of you, just, I'm going to assume you're not doing it. Hey, we're thankful to have you here. Maybe, maybe you're, you're still waking up, not sure what's going on, but um, it's too late. You can't make it up now. Um, but uh, it's good to, good to have you guys with us. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here at the church over preaching and teaching. And we're truly thankful for what Jesus is doing in this church. Thankful for Jenna and Stephanie, the story that God is doing in your lives 
We are truly thankful. If you guys don't know them, make sure at the end of this worship gathering, um, you go out of your way to, to talk to them, to encourage them, to get to know them, and to uh, also show up and support them this evening at Old A's. A little change there, but it's all good. Old A's, 4 o'clock. We hope to see you guys there in supporting them and the work that Jesus is doing, and it's just a great way to get connected in the community. On Friday, I was uh, blessed to be able to officiate a wedding for a couple in the church, and um, it was special. It's always always a, a vivid reminder of how neat weddings are, just the celebrations, the time that's put into weddings. You know, the groom stands there. He's waiting in anticipation for his bride to come down the aisle, for a bride dressed in and white, and as he's waiting there in anticipation, that usually you have a ring bearer and the flower girl that, you know, prepare the way by tossing flowers and usually stealing the show. And, and then there's the, the groom waiting for his bride. That big moment where everyone has been waiting for, all the guests are there, at which they hear, all rise, and the bride is brought to her groom. Walking down the aisle, prepared with flower petals and decorations, friends and family gathered. Uh, the event is infused with emotions. People have taken time off work to be there. People have rearranged their schedules. Money has been spent. Food has been prepared by caterers. Decorations perfected all for this moment. And this familiar theme, this scene of a wedding is a scene that is unfolding really before our eyes here in Mark 11. Jesus is coming and the epic entrance of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is being prepared. The Prince of Peace is coming to take a bride for himself. The world has stopped. Schedules have been rearranged. Preparations have been made. Excitement is at an all-time high for this moment. Jesus is coming for his own, for his people, for his bride. And they drew near, verse 1 says, to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. So Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. We know that Jesus has set his eyes on Jerusalem for quite a while now. Jesus did not come to build his celebrity status, to heal the, the, the needs and the sicknesses of everyone in the world, his intent was ultimately to preach the gospel, to preach the message of repentance, and in preaching the message of repentance, that he would be the gospel, that he would be the good news by dying on a cross, by sacrificing his life. And so there is a pivotal change that is taking place here in verse 1 of this gospel account, a change that is most significant of any change we've seen so far. Now we know, if we're going to pull back for a moment, we know what the gospel of Mark is all about. There's no secrets. There's no fine print. 
There's no disclaimer. Chapter 1, verse 1, Mark says, right from the gate, right, at, right out of the gate, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so what is Mark's gospel about then? Is it about you? Is it about me? Is it about how we can live our lives, how we can be benefited, how we can be blessed, or how we should live these certain steps to be a better person? None of that nonsense. The gospel at the end of the day is about Jesus Christ. This book is an account of that Jesus. It's all about Jesus. In fact, not only is Mark all about Jesus, this whole book bleeds the blood of Christ. It's all about Jesus. It points us to Jesus and in chapters 1, verse 2, all the way to the end of chapter 10, Mark is making the case about who this Jesus is. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he presents who Jesus is, that Jesus is the servant, that Jesus is the Savior, but mostly focusing on the servant part, that he is God in the flesh, that, that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And he's done miracles revealing his identity, that he is in fact God incarnate. And when he would do amazing miracles, people could not keep their mouths shut. And so um, he would say things like, go and tell no one. In other words, shut up, be quiet, stop gossiping, stop going around talking, and don't put it on Facebook, don't go viral, don't keep it on the down low. He would say things like that because my time has not yet come. But that is no longer the case. It's time for people to arise just like a wedding walks down her aisle. The Savior is walking down the roadside into Jerusalem and it's time to arise at the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. The Messiah is returning to Jerusalem. He is ascending the hill and everything has been building up to this moment. And to put this in perspective, the first 10 chapters of Mark's gospel are about are on the three years of the life and the ministry of Jesus. The last seven chapters focus in on the last seven days of the, the Messiah, which really shows you the emphasis of why Jesus came, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So while the first 10 chapters are making the case about who Jesus is, the last chapters are focusing on how Jesus is this promised Messiah. Because you've said Jesus is the Messiah, how so? And these verses are testimony to that. And as we're nearing Bethpage, coming to the Mount of Olives, he's doing all this because his time has come. The, this is the Messiah's coming of age. No longer is the identity of Jesus to be kept on the down low, to be muted, to be censored. It's time to declare that Jesus is the Christ. He is here. The Messiah has arrived. No longer are we censoring him. And as Jesus is getting ready for this grand epic entrance, of which no longer is he going to say, don't tell anyone. He sends two of his disciples. 
And he tells them in verse 2, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied, which no one has ever sat on. Untie it and bring it to me. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Because that's pretty logical, right? Like if you're going to take keys, or if you're going to be told by someone to go to a car, you're going to find keys in the ignition. There may be people there, and if there are people there, just, just, just jump in the car and tell them someone needs it, right? Like would you go, you wouldn't do that today. Maybe you would. I don't know. The only reason why the disciples would ever think about going to obey this type of command is because they believe Jesus is the Lord. Tell them that the Lord is of need of it. The Lord, look at that in verse 3, the second half. The Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. I want you to highlight that. The Lord needs this animal. The Lord needs it. Not just a poor Jewish car, son of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth or a guy who can preach decent sermons. Actually, like the best sermons ever. Um, the Lord. God in the flesh. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is God. Jesus is the sovereign. Jesus is the groom here going to get his bride. And anyone who tells you, anyone who makes statements like, well, the Bible doesn't really claim that Jesus is actually God, is either very naive because they do not understand the scriptures or is extremely deceitful and trying to pull people and deceive people away from the knowledge of the truth about who Jesus actually is. And who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. And he is God in the flesh. Jesus is Lord. There's no mistaking about it here, that Jesus is God. And then in verse 7, they went away. And they found a colt tied outside the door in the street. Of course they did. Of course they did. It was there. How so? Because Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, he knows all things. And he even knew the premeditated response that the people who maybe were taking care of the colt would have given. And so he even tells them like the passcode. Tell them the Lord needs it. <laughs> what are you doing on tying the colt? Verse 5 understandable. And they told them what Jesus said. In fact, other gospel accounts, they just reiterate exactly what Jesus said. The Lord needs it. Okay. Go take it for a spin. Wow. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it. And he sat on it. I think in this moment, there's so much happening that as the disciples are untying the colt, they are beginning to tie deep, rich, prophetic truths together. Zechariah 14.4 prophesied that when the Messiah comes, he will come on the Mount of Olives. But we already all knew that, right? Because we all had Zechariah 14.4 memorized this morning. 
You didn't, right? See, see, oftentimes, we don't see the significance of some of these things, but if you were a Jew, if you were there during that day, if you were a disciple and you knew the Bible well, like Jews knew the Bible well, they would have had Zechariah 14.4 on top of mind. And as they see Jesus there on the mountain, he is actually fulfilling the prophecy. So how is Jesus the Messiah? Here is your Messiah, Israel. Standing on the Mount of Olives. On that day, Zechariah 14.4 says, The Lord, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, on Jerusalem, and the Mount will split apart, making a wide valley running from east to west. Half the mountain will move towards the north, and half the mountain will move towards the south. Now, a lot of people hear that promise, and so they're seeing Jesus standing on the mountain, and maybe they're waiting for the mountain to split but there's so much more here than an actual literal splitting that is taking place. There is a figurative splitting that is happening at this moment as the Messiah stands there on the mountain. Israel, this is the the Messiah you've been waiting for. This Messiah is Jesus. And here the Mount of Olives is figuratively splitting apart. Some will move towards Jesus, toward the north. Others will move away from Jesus, toward the south. Many in Israel, regardless of, um, regardless of where they're at, many, thousands of people in Israel are going to split over the identity of Jesus. Jesus, fulfilling this prophecy as the Messiah shows us, that when Jesus stands upon his identity as God, God in the flesh, that he was sovereign, ruling, holding all things together as God, even as a baby in a manger. That even before he was born, he was never created because he is eternal, existing with the Father and existing with the spirits in heaven from eternity past. Jesus fulfilling this prophecy as the Messiah shows us that no one can be neutral with Jesus. And so maybe you're here this morning. And if you're here this morning and you wrestle with doubts or you're not really sure what to make of Christianity or you're speculating, we're thankful to have you here. But you cannot stay there. It's one thing to speculate, but to be indifferent, indifferent towards Jesus is to, in fact, move away from Jesus. If you were not for Jesus, you by default, which is all of us as sinners, are against Jesus. And in Revelation, in the beginning of Revelation, the Apostle John, through the Spirit, is writing letters to seven churches. And to one of the churches, when it comes to the condition of the church, Jesus' desire for the church is that we would be hot. Is that we would burn with fervency in love and worship Jesus with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And that Jesus would not have a lukewarm people. He would desire for us to be hot, and if we're not going to be hot, at least be cold. Because if you're lukewarm, he's going to vomit you, he's going to spit you out of his mouth. And, and last time I checked, that language of being vomited out of the mouth of God is pretty disgusting, right? Right? 
be hot or cold. But let's not be fake, guys. Can we please stop pretending? If you're lukewarm this morning, repent and ask the grace of God to stir up and renew and bring you back to a fervent love relationship with Jesus Christ or why you church is a weird hobby like there's so many other things you could be doing on Sunday morning if you're gonna like seriously though don't be lukewarm don't play don't fake it We cannot be neutral with Jesus. Check your heart and ask yourself, are you moving to the north? Are you moving towards Jesus? Or are you moving away from Jesus? What is the trajectory of your life this morning? Are you moving closer to a love relationship with Jesus? Or are you faking it? Are you moving away? See, what's sobering about the triumphant entry is there are thousands there who, can, who are singing, praising with other people. They're there to be near with Jesus. And yet Jesus, for many of them, is not going to be their Lord. And then verse 8 we see, many spread their cloaks on the road. And others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David, Hosanna in the highest. And so they are singing praises. They are laying out decorations. They have arisen for the groom and they are singing with other people, being near to Jesus. And they're hoping Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Now you can understand why they would think Jesus is going to overthrow the Roman Empire. Because after all, Jesus is a king. In Mark's gospel account, we've seen that Jesus is king over creation. He is Lord over creation. He can take a... He could take fish and sovereignly move them into the nets of the disciples who are fishing, right? He can stand on a boat and calm a sea with his mouth. And the disciples would say, who is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Because Jesus is king over creation. Jesus was king over disease. Jesus could heal the blind. He could take care of the sick. He could, clear, he could clear and cleanse people from leprosy and incurable disease. Jesus was king over Satan. Jesus would cast out demons from men and women and younger people. Jesus was king over sin because he had authority to forgive people of their sin. And Jesus was king over death. He could raise people from the dead. 
So you can see why the Jews are worshiping this Jesus as a king. And no doubt people would have been whispering under their breath as shouts were being praised and given to Jesus. Look, he is on the way to take care of our oppression and overthrow the government. Our king is here. He's going to sit on David's throne So palm branches waving everywhere. People are shouting. Thousands have gathered. People were singing. And everyone is thinking that everything is going to change from this moment on. And they're there with anticipation trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. Is that Jesus coming down the way? His hands are being raised and faces and heads are moving in front of them. No, that's one of his disciples. There he is. I think that's Jesus. Yes, that is Jesus. He's riding on a, he's 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 riding on a donkey? Wait, hold up really quick. Hold hold up. Yeah, exactly. I love that. Amen. He's on a donkey? Like, for real. It's a little weird that God is on a donkey, right? It's like pulling up to the red carpet, like in a station wagon, right? Or Pinto. Pinto, even better. It's like the most powerful, one of the most powerful men in the world, the president of the United States, just like, like showing up on a unicycle or something. I don't know. It's like, <laughs> I would, never mind. I'm not even going to go there. I, uh, I was, I would grow up going, doing trips to Mexico, some for mission trips, some for just surf trips. And one of our surf trips, we went down there. It was, it was, it was a, a tradition we would do. Us and our friends, we'd go horseback riding in Mexico and go for a couple hours. And, and I think horses are great to look at. I hate being on top of them. They're annoying. They're just so uncomfortable. They really are. Like, they're painful. Really painful. Anyways, um, and so I was reluctant to get on a horse. And... Um, all, everyone else was, well, they were getting on their big, giant, masculine, strong horses. And I was like, yeah, have fun, guys. Like, go do your thing. And then sure enough, I found that everyone was going horseback riding for a couple hours, and I was going to be sitting there alone at the beach. So I reluctantly was like, fine, I'll go. And the, the vaquero was like, okay, hey, here's the deal. We, uh, we, we don't have any horses left. But he walks away and walks up with a mule. Which, you know, mules, like horses are high, and they're tall, and they're grand, and they're amazing, and he brings up this mule. He's like, here you go, you can ride on this. Everyone was laughing at me. Thank you for doing that, by the way. (laughs) Then, and today, why? Because mules are animals of humiliation, right? They're insignificant. They're not important. You know what's terrible about a mule? Is their stride is half of the stride of a horse. And so I was bouncing on this stupid thing twice as much. I should have just gone on a horse. Here's the king. Here is God, not expecting to be treated as someone important. Not accounting equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he comes in on a horse animal of humility and God is on a donkey like he, if I was God if you were Jesus in this moment no doubt you would have put in your you know your reservations for a stretched out chariot or at least a really nice ride 
Why is this called the triumphant entry? It's because Jesus is proving how he is the Messiah. Not just by standing on the Mount of Olives, but by fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9, 9, five chapters earlier. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Does this sound like what's happening in this moment? Behold, your king is coming Righteous and having salvation is he, because salvation is of the Lord, humbled and mounted on a donkey. Humbled, mounted on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And so in this moment, do you guys see that no doubt these people would have been confused? Jesus, you should be on a horse. You're waging war. You're overthrowing the kingdom, kingdom. But see, sadly, Jesus was king and he is king. But for many of them, he was not their king. How can this be? How can this be? How could they miss it? They have wrong expectations of Jesus. They didn't want a king on a donkey because a donkey is an animal of peace. They wanted a king on a horse who was going to wage war and who was going to give them what they wanted, a political revolution. And Jesus is inverting the kingdom right before their very eyes. Because the kingdom of God is not like the kingdom of man. See, it's through weakness there is power. And the kingdom of God, humility overthrows pride. Light pierces the darkness. The first will be last. The last will be first. The foolish will overtake the wise. And God will ride on a donkey. And on Good Friday, he will be killed. And we can look at the Jews and think, man, how do they miss it? Can't, why don't they see? It's so clear. Zechariah 14, Zechariah 9, they're completely missing the prophecies and they missed it. Listen, it's not that Israel's expectations were too high, but it's that Israel's expectations were too low. For them, it didn't make sense. They wanted a political king. Jesus came to save us from Satan sin, hell, and death. And even though many are adoring him right now, and just a few days later, they will yell, crucify him. And we are no different. We have this same confusion today where we have wrong expectations. And I've been growing in this, and I've been wrestling with this. I've been struggling with these two ideas going against one another. It's the way we want things versus the way God intends things, right? It's the way we want things to be versus the way God intends things to actually be. 
And when we don't have our entitlements satisfied by God, when we don't get our way, oftentimes we drop our branches, pick up our coats off the ground, and raise our fists at God. I've done this. Because we have wrong expectations of Jesus. And it's not because our expectations are too high. It's that our expectations are too low. And if all frustration, listen to me on this, if all frustration is brewed from unmet expectation, at times how we want things to be done in our life are often at odds with how God wants to accomplish his will. And to set expectations, Jesus is Lord. And Lord means he must be in control and sovereign over everything. Jesus doesn't just want some of you. He wants all of you. It's better to be cold than lukewarm. He wants you hot. He wants you to be his. He accomplished so much. He's gone through so much. He's revealed so much of his identity. How could you not possibly give all of yourself over to him? To set expectations. He is God. And God is worthy to be praised. In fact, in this same story and other gospel accounts, there are religious Jews there telling other people, shut up, don't worship him. He doesn't say Hosanna in the highest. Don't worship him right now in this moment. You know what Jesus said? If they don't worship me, creation will. Even the rocks will cry out. God will be glorified. The question is, will he be glorified through you? See, in this time, in this very moment in history, the Romans declared Caesar is king. The Jews declared God in heaven is king. And here is Jesus declaring, I am king. It's a line in the sand that has been driven like no other. Is Jesus king of your life? Pray that he is. I want to close with this thought about this picture of people laying down their cloaks on the road. Do you know that cloaks were extremely important to people then? Cloaks for poor people were often, was, was often all that they owned. Cloaks would provide identity. Cloaks would provide security from the elements, rain, wind, sun, sand, Cloaks were often all that poor people had. And here are some people throwing all that they have at the feet of Jesus. If we are going to set expectations, if Jesus is Lord, when Jesus is truly your king, you are willing to lay everything at his feet. And he is a king you should lay everything at his feet because Jesus is the greatest king.
Jesus is the only king of kings. Jesus is our great high priest. Jesus is savior. Jesus saves you from yourself. Jesus saves us from the kingdom of darkness. And Jesus saves us from hell, which is what we all deserve. And he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. The first time Jesus came to this earth, he is riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, an animal of peace and humility. But he is coming again to judge the living and the dead. And the next time Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem at his second coming, you know what he's coming on? He's coming on a horse a white horse, and he is going to wage the final war, and he is going to forever bound Satan for all eternity, and he's going to forever judge sin, and in this new kingdom, there will be no more tears, and you are invited to be a part of this kingdom. Is Jesus your Lord? When he comes, his eyes are like flames of fire. He's got a tattoo on his thigh that no one knows what it says except for, except for him. His robe, which is white, will be dipped in blood from the war that he is going to wage against Satan's sin and death for the last time. Are you in the kingdom of light? Is he your Lord? You must first lay all that you have at his feet and see that he was humiliated on your behalf that he substituted himself on your behalf so that you would come to know, to have faith, and to trust in him. And when he wages war in that final battle, at his second coming, he is going to restore, it's a recreation, he is going to recreate everything man and sin has ruined. And that will be a great wedding day, and there will be a great feast on that day. I pray. I hope that you see the invitation of God being extended to you. God has come to save his own. Father God, we thank you that you are Savior, Lord. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. May we worship you with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. And whatever expectations we have of you, God, may we lay them at your feet for your expectations and your blessings far exceed anything we could ever ask or imagine. But often, it's different than what we expect. We ask, Father God, that for those in here who do not have a relationship with you, that they would come to believe, love, and worship you. And if we're lukewarm, may by your grace, you fan the dying coals of fervency in our life. May we be passionately, fervently seeking after you because you have saved us. Jesus, thank you that you are our king. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening. 
please visit shorebreakchurch.com to stay connected or to share your story.